Uh, let your wives make fun of you, okay? Uh, <laughs> here's what we want to do. We want to look at verse 27 through 32. But we're going to be picking up, um, sort of ending the, the one little section dealing with the lineage, and then we're going to pick, be picking up tonight as well with verse 27 down through 32, looking at Abraham uh, and uh, as God is setting up his promises, and ultimately the one that he's going to give a promise to, uh, to bring about the covenant, and especially as we think uh, broad to specific, what is God doing in the grand redemptive story and theme is he's bringing about the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come thousands of years later as promised. And so... Uh, Let's read here verse 27 through 32 just to help us out a little bit. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot, and Haran died before his his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Sarai was barren, but Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah uh, took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, uh, Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came into Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, as we look here, we're going to be picking up in subsection B of Abram's family tree there, if you're following along in your booklet, where it says, the line of Shem down to Abram's father, Terah, is given, verse 10 through 26. MacDonald writes, These verses trace the line of Shem to Abram. Thus the historical records narrows from the human race to one branch of that race, the Semites, and then to one man, Abram, who becomes the head of the Hebrew nation. The rest of the Old Testament is largely a history of this nation. As we'll see later, there is a reason why we teach our children, and we sing it oftentimes at VBS, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. All right, everybody, do your right arm? Okay. Then as it goes left arm, Tony will demonstrate it for everybody afterwards at, at the service, so he'll, he'll come up. Isn't that right, Tony? <laughs> okay. <laughs> he's been working. He's been practicing on it. So uh, as we see, there is a reason why he's considered to be Father Abraham, because he's going to be the father of many nations, as we'll see later on, as God gives him this covenant and tells him what this is going to be. Uh, But as we see here, what God is doing is he is bringing about through one man, ultimately to bring about the God man uh, who is there to redeem. And so as we work our way through, there is a narrowing of the redemptive line going from the broad to the narrow. Uh, As we have seen, it's sort of this funnel effect, if you will, that God is pouring all of his grace in this big time uh, of redemption's history through this broad uh, generations that we've seen, ultimately to get through this one narrow way, through this one narrow lineage that's going to ultimately trace... uh, all the way down to Jesus. Now, Sorensen writes, the summary of this lineage is this. Shem lived 200 years after the flood and begat Arphaxad. Two years later, uh, he lived another 500 years thereafter. Arphaxad begat Selah uh, at the age of 35, 35 years later. Right? He lived another 403 years. Selah begat, uh, begat Eber at the age of 30, 30 years later. He lived another 403 years. Eber begat Peleg at the age of 34, 34 years later. He lived another 430 years. Peleg begat Reu at the age of 30, 30 years later. He lived another 209 years. Reu begat Sarag at the age of 32, 32 years later. He lived another 207 years. Sarag begat Nahor at age 30. He lived another 200 years. Understanding Genesis uh, uh, 9-5, Nahor uh, begat Terah at age 29. He lived another 119 years. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran at age 70. Terah died at the age of 205. In adding the timeline, there are 292 years from the end of the flood to the birth of Terah's first son. Now, why do we say all that? 300 years, a whole lot happens. 
Y'all know what the world's population was 100 years ago? About half of what it is today. You know what it is today? About 8 billion. You know what it was then? About 3.5 billion. So it has increased exponentially in 100 years. So what do we know? At this point in time, while we're only seeing a portion of that through here, this lineage of those who are being born, the sons and daughters, what we are finding is that the population of the world is booming once more, that the people are repopulating, and especially after the dispersal uh, at, there at Babel in chapter 11, verse 1 through 9, what we're going to see is as this continues to increase, we're not talking about just a couple little villages. We've already seen an establishment of a civilization, a society there at Babel. Of course, they were corrupt, and God struck them down and ultimately uh, halted their work, and their, uh, they uh, were dis, uh, dispersed because of their language being confounded and confused, and so they go throughout the world. But as we see this, about 292 years, uh, and adding the timeline, there are 292 years from the end of the flood to the birth of Terah's son. We categorically reject the notion that there are gaps in the chronology uh, not noted. Now, what might be implied is that Abram, Nahor, and Haran were triplet brothers, perhaps, right? And Swanson just says, it's, both, it's a maybe, we don't know. However, Abram was 75 when he departed out of Haran. Terah died at the age of 205. Therefore, it is likely that Haran was born when his father was 70 and Abram was born when he was 130. Anybody who's 70 years old out there, how many of you would like to become a brand new parent? <laughs> we laugh, right? Times were a whole lot different then. Now, here's what we think. Uh, the, the bodies were different. The way that they changed were different. Notice, people aren't living to be 200 years old anymore, right? It, matter of fact, the average age, it varies from country to country, but you figure today, uh, you're looking at mid-70s, 80, right? We'll keep pushing up higher, right? <laughs> hey, look, if you made it, praise the Lord, right, for every year we got. And so, you know, sometimes we get so focused on a number. Uh, I know uh, turning older for folks it gets harder and harder. Uh, when Miss Cammy turned 29 uh, for the second time, it was a little bit more difficult. Uh, but, you know, uh, we find that for all of us, she's not here tonight, she's sick at home, so she's going to beat me up for that, but that's all right. Uh, but here's what we see. We see that we don't live how they used to live. Why? Because from the very beginning of time, man was designed to live forever. He was placed in a perfect garden, and he could have lived forever. Here's the way that Adam and Eve could have lived forever. You ready? They obeyed God, but they didn't. And so because of that, sin brings about sickness and death, and now everyone is born going to die one day. And we're not born going to live forever. Now, we're going to live forever spiritually one, one place or another, either in a real heaven or in a real hell, and it's based upon not our works, but based upon the works of Jesus Christ, whether we repent and believe the gospel or not. Now, here, here's what we understand, is that as you are closer to that sort of big ball being dropped at the fall, if you will, right there in the Garden of Eden. The people from that time forward, they slowly started living less and less. But notice, up until Noah, they're still living in the hundreds and hundreds, twice as long as these folks here. So what we are finding is that the age of life expectancy is slowly decreasing, right? And so uh, with all this, uh, we see that God is doing uh, something for us here in this passage that is important for us to understand. When we come to these uh, genealogies, we often are tempted to just simply go, well, it's just a bunch of names that I can't pronounce. It just goes on and on and on, right? All this. And, and so here we see that this is, these are real people. This is a real account. This is a real lineage. And, and tonight, just for sake of time, we won't get into it, but I encourage you, go home tonight, tomorrow, sometime this week, maybe if you're feeling curious, you ain't got nothing else to do. I want you to read Matthew 1. Read Matthew 1. And read Luke chapter 3, uh, verse 23 through 38. 
Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. Those are the two lineages that are given about the Lord Jesus Christ. One goes all the way back to Adam. The one picks up uh, with, uh, with Abram, right? Uh, now, the other one includes all of the above, and then the one goes from Abram to, to Jesus. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Matthew 1, and then Luke 3, verses 23 through 38. Yes, ma'am. All right. Say, hey, since she did it, she's going to be giving us full report next week, right? now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, no, it, but it's good to see. And the reason why I give you that scripture to try to do a little bit of homework is because I want you to see and understand that this genealogy here in chapter 11 matters on the grand scheme because the same names that we see here, we're going to see when it tells us about how the Lord Jesus Christ was a real human being. He was truly God, truly man in the flesh. And so if Jesus was not a real person, if we don't have a real account of him, then we have no reason to trust to him. If we have no real account of even these folks and what God is doing to bring about that promised seed, then we've got no reason to trust the Bible. And so as it has been said, if you can't trust Genesis 1 through 11, then you can't trust the rest of the Bible. But because we can trust Genesis 1 through 11, we can trust every jot, every tittle from the very first Hebrew, Aleph, which is the first letter of its alphabet, to an omega, which is the very last of the Greek alphabet, from everything in between, from the very first verse of Genesis to the very last revelation, it is God's word. It is trustworthy. Now, this is a reminder for the reader that believe, that, uh, and believer that God's word reveals historical accuracy. Uh, not only does this draw us to Christ and his word, but to trust Christ because his lineage that will be given to the, in the Gospels goes directly with this account, proving Jesus' Jesus's historicity, humanity, and that he is the fulfillment of all these promises given to these faithful patriarchs. And so ultimately, what you need to know about the Bible, ultimately what you need to know about yourself, ultimately what you need to know about mankind, ultimately what you need to know about God alone is found in the personal work of Jesus Christ. If you want to know something that's of worth and of value, look to Christ. He is of worth and value. He is the only thing truly that is of worth and value in this world. Phillips writes, he thus traced Abraham's descendants from Noah through Seth. It was in Seth's line that God found at last the man upon whose faith, whose daring faith, the rest of the Bible is made to hinge. Notice that. The rest of the Bible hinges upon what God is about to do with Abraham. Can you imagine such? Now, here's Abraham. He ain't got a clue. He's sitting over here in Earth, Chaldees going, <whistles> he doesn't know what's about to take place. Nor does he know that for thousands of years, can you imagine this? And this is why this is important here, by the way. What did we just ask for prayer for earlier? Israel. Why? Because they're God's chosen people. How do we know they're God's chosen people? Because God spoke to Abram and said, I'm going to make you a people that isn't a people. I'm going to make you the father of nations. I'm going to give you a land, seed, and a blessing. And the land that he has given is the land of Israel. As a matter of fact, they're not even occupying and have not occupied at any time in their history all the land that God has given to them. That day is coming, by the way, when Christ comes. Now, nevertheless, what else do we see about the covenant that we'll see later on? Land and seed. That means this. Seed means descendants. Now, he's, he tells Abraham later on that they are going to be more than the number of the stars in the sky, more than the sand of, this, uh, of, of, the, of the beaches, of the oceans, of everywhere, right? And so, uh, of course, that is to get us to understand that it, it is infinite in its magnitude, if you will. Uh, both the, uh, a physiological seed, a genealogical seed, and as well as a spiritual seed. Those who will, like Abram, will believe God and it will be accounted unto him for righteousness. Those who are like us today, saved the same way Abraham was, by grace through faith, and the work of the Lord. Now, uh, why is this also important? Land, seed, and then what? Blessing. 
Israel would be a blessed people, but they were to be a blessing, a light to the Gentiles. And so here's what we find, is that God has prepared a work here in chapter 11 to ultimately bring us to, what, what's today's date? The 11th? Okay, to October the 11th, 2023, where right now there is a war going on against God's chosen people, Israel, and we see God is fulfilling His promises 4,000 plus years later. Now, if that is true, and it is, then how could we not believe this Bible and everything else that's in it, right? Now, as we move forward here, the chosen line now leads out of the world into that of the patriarchs. Of the names in chapter 10, verse 22, only the ancestors of Eber reappear. Thereafter, it is Peleg, not Joktan, as in 1025, who is the growing point. Now, remember, many times in the genealogies here, uh, chapter 11, chapter 10, chapter 5, chapter 4, is what we find with the genealogies is this, that God goes, here's a line, here's a line, so-and-so had this son, this son, and this son. This son had this many kids, and it doesn't even mention the rest of them. You go, well, why is that? Well, it's because the line leading to Christ is going through this one. That's the one that ultimately is of utmost importance. Now, it doesn't mean that the rest of them just keeled out or died off. It just simply means that God was working and operating His, his plan uh, to bring about redemption story through that line. Uh, as he goes on here, uh, we'll keep reading here in this quote. He says, uh, but the growth of the nations in chapter 10, apart from any other considerations, makes it clear that the great intervals lie between them. The, considerate, uh, the lifespan, excuse me, the lifespan is steadily contracting from the antediluvian level. Antediluvian is a fancy word for saying pre-flood, all right? Um, antediluvian level towards the 175 years of Abram and the 110 of Joseph, more significantly in view of the promised birth of Isaac, who would be uh, a promised uh, seed. Uh, the age of parenthood has dropped to a point not far above its present level. Now think about this. Uh, they were having babies in the antediluvian world, I mean the pre-flood world, for a long time. Now, they grew up perhaps maybe slower than what we do. We, we're, we're unsure. There's much mystery. But nevertheless, if you're living to be 800 years, right? If you look at the ratios, okay, uh, today, average lifespan, we'll say 80 or whatever, uh, whatever Doug wants it to be, all right? We'll make it that. But then here, here's what happens. Out of those 80 years, how many of those years are childbearing years? Maybe a third, right? Maybe, okay. Now, out of 80 years, you got maybe, a, we'll say a third are, are childbearing, all right? So do the math, roughly that's 26 and a half years, roughly. I don't know, if Doug will tell me if I'm right or wrong. <laughs> 26 and a half years. Now, let's do a third of 800 years. Now, we're talking about a long time people to have babies, right? You're going to run out of names. You're going to forget. Your, oh, where'd that one come from? I mean, all this sorts of thing. They're having kids at the wazoo. Now, here, here's what we have to, the re reason why this is important is because God is doing a great work through this. Because he promised to simply Adam and Eve there in the garden that even though you have sinned, even though you deserve hell, my grace will bring a seed through you who will redeem your people, who will redeem my people, who will redeem all those who come to him for salvation. Now, here's where we get to pick up with God's redemptive plan here. 
sort of his next man on the map, if you will, of redemption's story. Thus far as we've talked about, we've had Adam, we've had uh, Abel, he got killed, God reared up Seth, Seth, they start calling upon the name of the Lord again, then we've got righteous lineage going through, ultimately bringing about Noah, then through Shem, and now here we are, leading to Terah, about ten generations later, uh, here what we got. We've got Terah lived... And now the generations of Terah, Terah begat Abram and Nahor and Haran, and Haran begat Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. Verse 27 and 28. Abram's immediate family history is given here. Philip's writes, arriving at Terah, Moses paused to look at Abram's family ties. He had two brothers, a niece and a nephew. His brothers Haran's three children were Milcah, Iska, and Lot. Now y'all have heard of Lot, right? All right. Now, uh, his, uh, the, thus Lot is introduced into the story, a man who stands out in so many ways in contrast with Abram. And yet what we're going to find is that Lot, even after all that he did and the way in which he was and the way in which his life went, you know what he's described as? A righteous man. Now, isn't that mind-blowing? So tonight, here's the encouraging thing. What you find is this. Abram is not going to be sinless. Matter of fact, here in another chapter, we're going to be going, What are you doing? Then we find Lot later on. What are you doing? And what does God say? But they're mine. They're, they're righteous in my sight. Not because of any good thing that they've done. Not because they're perfect and spotless. There's only one perfect and one spotless. That's Christ. But what we find is that it's going to be that they simply believed God. That is the key. Faith is the key. Now, Sorensen writes, the focus of divine history now narrows to the family of Abraham. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. However, his first, uh, however, he first had a son named Lot. Abram and Nahor, not to be confused with the Nahor verses 22 to 25, right, as can be. Uh, now, uh, remember, these are times there, there's going to be in, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there are so many names that are repeated, right? It's not the same dude for four chapters, five chapters, six chapters, right? It's not the same dude who was through all these different lineages and generations. It just means this. Y'all ever uh, heard the phrase average Joe? You know why? Because apparently there's more than just one Joe out there, right? Go figure. I didn't know that. Now, Sorensen goes on and talks about this. He says, uh, uh, Abram and Nahor, not to be confused with Nahor, of, of verses 22 to 25, married also. Abram's wife's name was Sarah. It is noteworthy that Nahor married his first cousin, such practices were not prohibited until the giving of the law in Leviticus. Abram also apparently married his half-sister, Genesis chapter 20, verse 12. And right now, everyone goes, e yep, see, exactly. You took the words right out of my mouth. Ew. But guess what? The times were uh, different. Now, here's what we understand is that later on, God is going to forbid these things because as we know now, when there is intermarrying and interbreeding that is far too close, right? There, become, uh, there becomes biological issues and, and disorders and things like that. Now, during this time, remember, Cain and Abel, it says that Cain goes and finds a wife. Where did he find one of those from? You think he went to Walmart and found a wife? You think he went to Dollar General? I'm sure they had those back then. No, he did not. Where did he get a wife? It was either a cousin or some sister or a niece. And so we find that the, the pickings were limited. But we find is that God still worked through these things and what we find is that the importance is the seed because ultimately Jesus is the promised seed. 
Now, we can get hung up on stuff like this and trying to figure out who married who and why they married them and how long they dated or how close in relationship they were, all that stuff. But ultimately, what matters is this. We get to this man, Abram, whom God is going to work through. Now, verses 28 to 32 gives us now the, the history of Abram. It begins here in verse number 28, and this is what we're going to pick up with now. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in the land of his nativity. Now, Terah's got to be sad here. He loses a kid. And he's got to bury his own son. That's sad. That's a difficult thing. That's a tragic thing. But here's what happens. It says this. In the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. Now, this is important for us to understand. Ur of the Chaldees here. Ur of the Chaldees, Sorensen writes, the land of Abram's birth was Ur of the Chaldees, a region near the mouth of the Euphrates River where it joins the Persian Gulf. It was an idolatrous area. Evidence exists the inhabitants there worshipped the moon. From Joshua 24:2, it seems clear Terah, and perhaps in his earlier years, Abram as well as Nahor, were idolaters. Now hold your place there. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 24 for a moment. Joshua chapter 24. Go over in your Bible like that far. There it is. You'll find it. Joshua 24. If you can't find it, that's okay. You fake it till you make it, and I'll read it for you anyways, all right? Joshua 24, verse 1 through 2, it says, And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. That's a good thing. You present themselves before the Lord. And then verse 2, it says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Remember, here in Joshua 24, Moses is dead, gone, and buried, right? Joshua has now been given charge and leadership over Israel. God is now working through Joshua, through his uh, courageous leadership. Joshua's been faithful throughout all this time, and here's what happens. It says, And Joshua said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Now, isn't that interesting? They clearly had quite the bit of time that had passed since the flood. They called it of old time. And they said, Our fathers of old, long before. So, why is that important? Because they traced their family lineage even yet still. So they're able to trace their lineage back to those men of old, men of renown, to those uh, days of old in the antediluvian, the pre-flood world. And he says, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out, what that's talking about. And they served other gods, it means they served other gods. And so here they came from a pagan lineage. This shows all the more the miraculous nature of God's salvation that God will take an idolatrous people and will make them His own. That God will take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. This shows us the beauty of our own salvation, that God takes those of us that are rebels, those that reject Him, those that run from Him, that run from him those that fight against Him, those that, that balk against His will, and what happens is He gives us new life. We become new creatures, new creations in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, as we look at this, we see that Joshua 24, 2 tends to point to the fact that where they were in Ur of the Chaldees was not only a pagan place, but they were more than likely a practicing a pagan people. Uh, they were more than likely at some point in time in Abraham's younger years, in Abram's younger years, but certainly it seems that Terah uh, would have been practicing what the rest of them were practicing during that day. Well, what were they practicing? Y'all remember what we talked about back in, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9, dealing with the people of Babel? That mystery religion? The, the place of worshiping the stars, the moon. Well, that's exactly what they did. Uh, and so they, they worshiped these false gods. They had a god and a goddess for everything. They had temples. And they had all sorts of paganism and idolatry and immorality. It was rampant. And yet, nevertheless, God said, I'm going to make a people. Ultimately, 
This is a picture of God's grace. As we look through this, we see that though they practiced this way, that God had greater plans. Kidner writes, Joshua 24.2 shows that Terah and his forefathers served other gods. His own name and those of Laban, Sarah, and Milcah point towards the moon god as perhaps the most prominent of these. Certainly Ur and Haran were centers of moon worship, which may suggest why the migration halted where it did. Terah's motive in leaving Ur may have been no more than prudence. The Elamites destroyed the city in 1950 B.C., but Abram had already heard the call of God, Acts chapter 7, verse 2 through 4, a comparison of verse 31 to B with chapter 12, verse 5, shows that Terah, lacking the vision, lost the will to persist. In Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, the lesson is drawn that only faith will stay the course. So the chapter brings the primeval history to a doubly appropriate close, with man's self-effort issuing in confusion at Babel and in compromise here. On his own, man will get no further than this. Here's what we see in all this. Man on his own will only see destruction. Man left to himself will only destroy himself. This is why man needs a Savior. This is why man needs to be born again. This is why man needs to trust in the Lord God Almighty because without Him, we will ruin ourselves. We have seen it already in chapter 11 with the people of Babel. They had built this great civilization. And don't get me wrong, though they were idolaters, though they were pagan and wicked and immoral, it was a wonderful civilization. They had great commerce. Business was booming. They had crops galore. Everything was good. And they had built it. But guess what? They had built it in pride and arrogance and, and, and blasphemy against God. And God said, I'm done with that. They ruined themselves. Sin will always ruin a man. Sin will always ruin a soul. Sin always brings about death and destruction. Sin is never good. And here, what we find is that sin and unbelief go hand in hand. You know the reason why we ever sin? Unbelief. You think, if we believed God as we ought to according to His Word, well, we wouldn't look at the things we look at, say the things we say, or think the things that we think. So the reason why we sin is simply because of unbelief at times where we're not truly trusting the Lord at His Word and trusting who we are in Him. Phillips writes, Last of all, as an introduction to the entire story of Abraham, a story so significant in the counsels of God, that the Spirit of God devotes 25% of the book of Genesis to its details. Moses records Abram's initial venture as a pilgrim. Again, the immediate narrative does not record how or when the true and living God revealed himself to Abram, the idolater of Ur, but evidently he did because in response to that revelation, not only Abram, but also Terah his father, Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew all took the first step. This tells us as well, in the life of Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way down to you and I, what do we know about God's people? We know this. We are saved by grace through faith and that we are nothing more than pilgrims. That God has a greater place for us and it's not here on this earth. It is said later on of Abraham that he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He looked not for a Babel that man made or a civilization that man said, look what we've made or created or look at how successful we are. He did not look for that kind of city. He looked for a place where God dwelt. Ultimately, the beauty of heaven is this. God is there. The, the, the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth is not necessarily the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and, and all this stuff. And that's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. 
There's nothing, we can't even fathom how beautiful heaven will be. But the beauty of heaven is not based upon those outward things. The beauty of heaven is based upon the fact that God is there. He is what makes it beautiful. Furthermore, as we look through this, we see that man, God's people, specifically believers, are to live as these pilgrims throughout the book of Genesis and ultimately in our own life. And as we are going to trace this, we're going to find that God has something greater for Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and for ourselves. Phillips continues, he says, Ur of the Chaldees, where Abram lived, was an important city of Babylonia. It was a city of luxury and attainment and a center of moon worship. The pilgrim family journeyed until they came to the city of Haran, and there the sojourners made their first stop. Haran was a frontier town of Babylonian empire, and like Ur of the Chaldees, was devoted to the worship of the moon god. You say, why in the world did they worship the moon god? What in the, what in the world's the deal? Well, as we talked about this back in Genesis chapter 11, Remember, we had who? Nimrod, Semiramis, Tammuz. One of those being represented by the moon. What do you find with modern-day Islam today? Find a crescent moon and a star. You know why? You traced Allah. You know what Allah is? Allah is a moon god. Now, we know he's not real. We know, if anything, he's just demonic. But he is not the god. He is not a god, nor is he to be compared to God. There is one living god. There is one god of the heavens and the earth, and that is the Lord. That is the Lord God Almighty, creator of heavens and earth, the one who rules over all things, all who will answer and bow down to him, period, point blank. We see that throughout the world today, you look at most modern day flags of those who are fighting Israel today, you know what's on their flag? Crescent moon and a star. Why? Because they worship the same folks that they did thousands of years ago. They worship the same gods with a different name. As we talked about, there are only two religions in the world. There's biblical Christianity, and then there is everything else. And outside of biblical Christianity, everything is, is exactly the same. The only difference is that it changes the name of the gods and the goddesses that they worship, or it changes the names of their practices, but ultimately they all come down to the same thing. Works-based salvation, ultimately a, a self-gratification and a self-worship Ultimately, it's demonic in nature and satanic in nature because what is Satanism? Satanism is not the worship of the devil. Satanism is the worship of self. Nothing is more demonic than pride. Nothing is more demonic than self-worship and self-righteousness. And so what we find is that biblical Christianity is a humbling thing because it, bow, it has us bow our hearts and our lives before Christ our King. Now, Ur was an epicenter of pagan worship. There was a pyramid there, or a tower, or a ziggurat, as we've talked about, the Tower of Babel, same. Not a little tower, not Tower of Pizza, but the idea of a pyramid here, a place of worship. There was one there like that, the Tower of Babel. There was temple prostitution. Sacrifice was common, including human sacrifice. Idolatry and immorality ran rampant. The place was evil. And yet what we find is that though sin left Babel, sin got off the ark, Went and created Babel. When Babel got dispersed, what do they do? They go and they create other places, and they do the same thing, which is why you see all throughout the world pyramids everywhere and the same pagan and idolatrous uh, theologies and practices. Now, the confusion of languages in Genesis 11, 1-9 disperses the idolatry and immorality with the people traveling throughout the world, and they begin to set up their own cities, and they begin to continue the religion of which they have known and practiced. Now, guess where it got them? Nowhere. You know where these cities and places are and civilizations are today that were so pagan and idolatrous? Gone. Lost to time and history. They're destroyed. 
Every nation and civilization or empire that goes the way of Cain or goes the way of evil, they will be destroyed. One way or the other. Now there's some important details as we get into this as well with verse 29 down through 32, looking at Abram and, and, and all these details about his and his family. Now Abram's name, it means father. And his wife Sarai's name means contentious. Proverbs later on is going to talk about living in the same roof with a contentious woman. Yeah, we laugh because we know what the proverb it ain't good. Right? Now we can look and we go, well, boy, Sarah, woo. But imagine this. What matters most to the folks of their day is procreation, continuing a lineage. Here, Abram, his name means father, and yet he ain't one. His name means father, and he can't be one. What is implied is that he and his wife have tried. He and his wife are growing older and perhaps have already perhaps reached the age where it ain't happening. Later on, we're going to see where it tells us specifically that they've reached the age that it cannot physically take place. Now, this is going to be a critical detail that will follow the redemptive plan through God's revelation through Abram and his descendants. Why? You and I already know he has descendants that come from his loins. Why is that important? Because here he's called a father, but he doesn't have children. And his wife is a mother, but yet she's barren and she had no child. Notice, barrenness and not having a child are two different things. You cannot be barren and still not have children. But if you're barren, you can't have them. To be barren in the womb. Women who were barren in, in their wombs, who could not produce children, were rejected in, by most of their husbands. They are rejected by their society. Ultimately, they were oftentimes viewed as an outcast or a second-class wife, and the husband would go and get another wife who could, who could um, have children for them to continue the lineage. Now, that practice has still been going on for quite some time. There's still uh, places of, and, and the, throughout the world that, that still do such practices. Now, Abram and his wife do not have children. Sarai is barren without child. It appears that she is unable to without a reason besides God's providential plan of redemption doesn't tell us why she's barren, nor does it say she's barren because of some sort of secret sin. It just simply says she's barren and without child. Now that is critical and key because you and I know that God is going to bring about the promised seed through her physical body. Because what is impossible for man is possible for God. Now that is the beauty of God saying how important the seed is how important a child is. Because he goes, I took one who grew up in an idolatrous land. And I made him the father of my chosen covenant people forever. For all time and eternity, by the way. Not only that, but I made him a father of many nations, even though him and his wife couldn't have children. You know why? Because I gave them children. Literal, physical children. This shows us the foreshadowing of God's work and will in their life. And that man needs a promised seed and the, the one God uses can't have children. Yet, in all this, the whole focus of all time and eternity is seen. God gets the glory. Abram couldn't get the glory. Sarai couldn't get the glory. 
nor could their promise uh, child Isaac or Jacob or anyone down through the lineage except for Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, get the glory and the honor. And no one deserves the honor and the glory in the whole story of redemption anyways except for God Himself because it is God that redeems and it is man that needs redeeming. Now, as we move forward, we see that God will redeem ultimately through the seed of the woman and will redeem Abram and Sarai's life story by providing for them a promised seed that will carry the covenant promises of God. Here's what's so interesting. God is going to promise that the Savior is going to come through a seed and then He takes Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and each one at some point or another struggle with fertility. Now you make that make sense because I can't. But what it does do is it makes me go, but God, look at what He did. He defies the odds of man because when the odds were literally zero, they weren't zero to God. This shows the miraculous nature of the, God's redemptive story throughout to bring about Christ. How was Jesus born? A physical mother and a physical father? No, he's born of a virgin. You ever heard of that happening ever before? Did it happen before her and him? Did it happen after? Nope. Why? Because God shows that redemption is miraculous. It is all by divine grace. Now, in Old Testament times, childbearing, specifically sons, were of the utmost importance for continuing the lineage. And the author's mention of this in Genesis 11.30 is for our benefit to be reminded of God's faithfulness and the miraculous nature of God's revealed redemptive story. Now, there is a consistent throughout this. As they go in verse 31-32, they start moving away from Babylon, if you will, or the Chaldees, and they're headed west, headed towards the promised land that they don't even know is promised to them yet. There's a consistent move away from Babel until they settle in Haran. It appears that Abram had received the call of God after the death of his father Terah while they were abiding as pilgrims in Haran. They were journeying away from the rest of the group, if you will, and then God called them. And we're going to see that in chapter 12, and Abram's going to answer. Now, Terah's death will leave Abram to be the patriarchal leader of the family and sets up for his coming call out of Haran into the promised land that will be given by God. Here's how things worked in those families during that day. They were very clannish and family-based. They were patriarchal in the way in which they were ran, in the way in which everything operated. And so whoever was the eldest man, right? It could have been grandpa or something, right? He was in charge. He, he was the elder statesman. He was normally the owner and operator of everything. And now his sons uh, were sort of the managers of the farms, the cattle, the servants, and everything else down the line. They ran the business the day-to-day while he got to sit back and enjoy his time of retirement, if you will, until his day of death. And Before he died, he would bless his children. And they would take over, and then one of them would become the patriarch. And then one of their sons would become the patriarch. And then the next one would become the patriarch. And that's how this worked. They would rule and they would lead their family, but as well they operated as the priest of the family. They led the families in worship, and that is how it's meant to be today, that the the man of the house, the the husband of the home, the father of the home, is to be a godly husband, is to be a godly father, and is to lead in godliness as an example and as well as an instruction. Guzik writes, Sometimes we can gain meaning from the names in the Bible. The name Terah means delay. The name Haran means parched, barren. When Abram was in partial obedience, then delay and barrenness marked his life. When he, we knowingly disobey God, we often delay the outworking of His plan in our lives, and we also experience barrenness. 
Here's what we find is that oftentimes the difficult parts of our life happen because we refuse to say yes to the Lord's plan. Sometimes we make things a whole lot more difficult in ourselves because we run from the Lord or because we fight His will or because we're simply doing this. We're going, all right, I trust you, Lord, but I got my fist balled up at you. <laughs> right? We're, we're still fighting. We're still giving it all we got instead of yielding and lifting up our hands and going, Lord, I trust you. I got no other plan. I've got no other work. I got nothing else I can do. I got no other hope. So, Lord, I'm just going to trust you. You take my life and you let it be whatever you want it to be. That's the Christian life. That's what the life of the believer is to look like. Our wandering as pilgrims is often God's way of preparing us for something greater. Abram ain't got a clue what is about to take place in his life, but his world is about to change. And it's going to be through him that ultimately the the promised seed is going to come. Already the seed of faith is seen in Abram as he has begun this journey, and the seed will blossom into receiving the call and covenant of God to reveal the continuation of God's plan of redemption. Now, as we end chapter 11, we begin sort of a brand new section of Genesis. And this is going to lead us into the story, the account of how God is going to work through Abram to make his people. He's going to promise him this land, seed, and blessing, and it's going to be an unconditional, everlasting covenant of which God is still fulfilling to this day, and that's why we ought to support Israel. And furthermore, and it's all the, we, why we ought to pray for the peace of Israel and pray for their salvation. And it's why as well the prophecies of the Old and New Testament alike that tell us that one day Israel will be born again in a day when they see the one in whom they have pierced. That day is coming. Christ is coming. The day of Him calling His people, His bride home to Him, that day is approaching. We don't need anything else to happen for the rapture to happen. We just need for it to happen. And so here's the issue today. As we bring this to a close and we focus here on Abram, we see God's redemptive plan is this. As we see all these things happening in the news today and we see all this stuff, we've got a couple options. One, we can ignore it. Two, we can get all sorts of riled up and get all sorts of scared. Or three, we look and we go, yep, just like the Bible says. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to quit looking so much at all this, and I'm going to start looking up at this. Look up, for your redemption draws nigh. We're awaiting for our Redeemer. He has come once. He bled. He died. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to Scripture to offer us eternal life, and we know He's coming back again for His own. And until that day, may we like Abram and his descendants live as faithful pilgrims obeying the call of of God upon our life to preach righteousness like Noah to be a preacher of righteousness to preach to an untoward generation that was wicked and vile and rejected God that we preach the gospel until we either die are killed or are called out of here that's our job today may we live with such faith Father we come to you this night we want to thank you for your word we're grateful that we could study it tonight grateful that we could look at this passage and see the redemptive plan of how you have uh, chosen to bring about salvation to us through your son Jesus we pray that tonight that our hearts would be uh, turned to you that we would receive your word by faith and God that we would see that everything in our life Lord you are bringing about for a greater redemptive purpose and story and God we long and look forward to that uh, eternal day of redemption where we will see you face to face where we will be called out of this world as pilgrims and we will get to be with you in an eternal home forevermore Lord help us 
uh, to be obedient to you as we go from this place and to, to be prayerful, to be faithful in all that we say and do to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a blessed night. We'll see y'all Sunday morning.